Listen to this podcast. You may have guessed, I am the Podman. No, you're not, said little Nicola. I am the Podman will take a magical look at podcasts about the Beatles and review them for accuracy, production value, and entertainment value, and then answer the question, is this podcast worth listening to? As always, I'm recording in studio number two at Shabby Road Studios. Number two... Number two, number two, which when turned back to front, sounds suspiciously like, turn me on, Podman, turn me on, Podman, turn me on, Podman. And yes, I know that would sound much better in stereo, but George Martin insists that the first four podcasts be in mono. Thank you for listening, and please don't forget to like and subscribe preferably before you listen to the show. Thanks again for listening. A splendid time is guaranteed for all. Hello, this is the famous Ringo of the Beatles, Geofab Geofab. This is episode number four, Podman the Fourth, Geofab Geofab. Not a bit like Cagney. Thank you, Ringo. We'll phone you. The Podman obviously loves the Beatles, but he likes plenty of other music as well. As a student of rock music, I feel obligated to study it beyond fandom. That's why I often listen to music that I don't particularly like. Some artists or some albums that I find unpleasant, a good many people whose musical tastes I respect, consider them classics. I therefore will, on occasion, listen to them to reassess them in my mind. Zeppelin, Springsteen... Paul's Ram album, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, all strike me as vastly overrated. Now that's not to say that when performing this little exercise, I haven't changed my opinion. Heck, the first time I heard Abbey Road, I wasn't impressed, and now I consider it to be one of the greatest albums of all time. And my assessments are never a blanket statement. Well, perhaps Rock's greatest plagiarizers, Led Zeppelin, is a blanket statement, but I love Wouldn't It Be Nice, Sloop John B, and God Only Knows from Pet Sounds, just as I love Too Many People, Ram On, Dear Boy, even with the pathetic fa 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 lyrics, Uncle Albert, and Backseat of My Car. But as an album, nope. So what brought this up? I've been listening to the Apple catalog lately and made some observations. 
the James Taylor album is fine. Some nice songs, but some bizarre orchestrations. MJQ is perfect. Play it in the background of your dinner party music. That's the way God planned it is a great listen, and it holds up to repeated listenings. Postcard by Mary Hopkin is the album Paul McCartney would have made if John Lennon had never been born. But Earth Song, Ocean Song has four or five fantastically beautiful songs, Gallagher and Lyle songs. The John Tavener albums have some fine moments, but are generally unlistenable. Doris Troy is awesome. I could listen for days. Well, hours at least. Radhakrishna Temple is wonderful and a truly centering listen. But the standout, and not for good reasons, is Jackie Lomax, Is This What You Want? Now, yes, I know, of course, there are many more Apple records, but this one made me stop in my tracks. First, I mourn what could have been a fantastic Beatles track, Sour Milk Sea. Sour Milk Sea was given to Jackie. Imagine this is a Beatles track. With all due respect, Jackie's strange vocals are a bit distracting, kind of like tinsel. But the other thing that jumps out is the incredible likeness the album's title track has to I Am The Walrus. Rolls Royce are golden boys, money so you make a choice. I'm buying things for all our boys, is this what you want? make you happy does it make you feel good mohair suits and cowboy boots and plastic tubes with sons that shoot a lady with whom you know you can't take boots is this how no one associated with this recording didn't point this out is mind-boggling perhaps the producer had problems identifying song plagiarism since I Am the Walrus is sort of the theme song of this podcast, and since, quite coincidentally, I Am the Walrus makes an appearance in every segment of this episode, that's serendipity, people. I decided to take a sideways look at what certainly is in the top five strangest Beatles songs, but it certainly can be considered a masterpiece. So in a larger sense... What does it say about the catalog that one of their strangest songs is so mimicked and has been covered so often and in so many languages? There aren't many cover versions of Revolution Number no. 9, You Know My Name, or Only a Northern Song. If you listen to the 
Okay, okay, okay. Maybe there's one. It doesn't really matter what clothes I wear, what words I care, or if my hair is brown. Cause it's only another song. But see, those covers are more like exact reproductions of the Beatles version. It's not like they're different. We just wrote it like that. Well, yes, but they're all kind of in the rock vein. It's not like they're doing any interesting variation. I, I love bluegrass as much as the next guy, but for a song to be considered a true classic, it has to have an international appeal. Geven ze zo 
seriously? Okay, there are hundreds. Walrus, thousands of cover versions. But aside from the covers, we have so many songs that echo phrasing or musical motifs from I Am The Walrus. At least Al Stewart acknowledged it and dedicated his song Terminal Eyes to Eggman Everywhere. Kurt Rundgren's Everybody Else is Wrong was on a homage to the Beatles, or was it just an adolescent swipe at John Lennon? At the edge of the world, the sun pouring down, we must be heading home. I completely agree I've just been waiting for the right words to come ELO's 10538 Overture seems like an homage.
so much of King Crimson sounds walrusy. Hey, we've created a new adjective. But dinosaur sounds very familiar here and there. about Flo and Eddie's We Are All Gumby. Walrus and Strawberry Fields and Piggy in the Middle all mashed up. While there are so many more, I'll end with the Innis Book of TV version, that's the show that gave us Blue Suede Schubert, of Neil's Montana Cafe. <laughs> Cigarette. Someone with a bluish chair by the laundrette. 
So what does it all mean? I think it speaks to the timelessness and genius of the Beatles. But doesn't everything? I have the distinct honor of reviewing what I consider to be the greatest music podcast of all time. Anyone who has ever listened to this cast will certainly agree that calling it the greatest music podcast of all time is not hyperbole. I am, of course, speaking of Andrew Hickey's A History of Rock in 500 Songs. Now, obviously, this podcast is much more inclusive than just the Beatles, but certainly the Beatles are the subject of more episodes than any other artists. Followed up, by the way, I suspect, given Andrew's prejudice, the Beach Boys. But the Beatle dominance makes perfect sense given their status in rock cosmology. And just an aside, as I am wont to frequently do, I imagine, although as a Beatles fan I may be a bit prejudiced in my thinking, that Beatles fans would be far more likely to appreciate this podcast than many other music fans. First, because of their influence, there is a mention of the Fabs and their music in a great many of Andrew's episodes. Secondly, because the Beatles' music was a synthesis of an enormous number of styles that are found throughout musical history, Beatles fans often are intellectually more curious than fans of other music. And thirdly, as we are now a quarter of a century past the millennium in which the Beatles existed as a unit, the levels of historical examination of their music have reached an exceptionally high level, something heretofore not common in musical analysis of popular music. Beatles fans, I think, would appreciate the level of research, the parenthetical subjects, and most importantly the accuracy, although more on this later, that Mr. Hickey imparts. I will confess that I have listened to every one of Andrew's episodes in their entirety, save one, and have learned something from each and every one of them, even the one I couldn't finish, which I think was about the band, two hours long and not enough Dylan. I will try to repeat the following line at least five times during this segment. This is, bar none, the best music podcast available on the internet. Andrew Hickey started the podcast in September of 2018. He said that he anticipated being able to finish it in about 10 years. He's recently revised that to be closer to finishing in 20 years. I sure hope I can listen to the end when Andrew's 500th song will be the smash hit and the Podman's favorite song of all time, 1999's She Thinks My Tractor's Sexy by Kenny Chesney.
History of Rock Music in 500 Songs by the Podman Episode 500 She Thinks My Tract is Sexy by Kenny Chesney Before I start, a quick note. This episode deals with, among other topics, autoerotica, or more accurately, tractor erotica, horse theft, not eating carbohydrates after 5 p.m., divorce, hurricanes, not wearing shoes or shirts, the word country, which seems to offend everybody but rappers and Colleen Carter, and most objectionably, Anderson Cooper. If any of those topics are likely to upset you, you might want to check the transcript. Unless you are transcript-phobic, then please watch the wonderful Billy Porter in Pose. And, of course, none of that is real, but it could be. Fingers crossed. So let's talk briefly about the creator of this incredible podcast. Andrew Hickey has authored numerous books, not all of which are about rock music. While he has written books about the L.A. music scene in the 60s, books on the Beatles, Kinks, Monkeys and several books on the Beach Boys, he has also written some science fiction as well as books on science, philosophy, and history. Let's just say the Renaissance just called, and it's jealous. Today I'm looking at A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, Episode 171, Hey Jude, by the Beatles. Andrew starts all his episodes with the song that he believes is the first record to contain the phrase rock and roll. A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs by Andrew Hickey Episode 171 Hey Jude by The Beatles Before I start, a quick note. This episode deals, among other topics, with child abandonment, spousal neglect, suicide attempts, miscarriage, rape accusations, and heroin addiction. If any of those topics are likely to upset you, you might want to check the transcript rather than listening to this episode. It also, for once, contains a short excerpt of an expletive, but given that that expletive in that context has been regularly played on daytime radio without complaint for over 50 years, I suspect it can be excused. Hickey begins this episode with an enlighteningly brief discussion of Transcendental Meditation, New Age Translation, Mindfulness. He then equates this to the almost four-minute coda of Hey Jude. He gives a bit of background on the Beatles' introduction to the Maharishi and the death of Brian Epstein. He talks about the 97.5% tax bracket, which led to, first, the establishment of a corporation, the Beatles and Company, which each Beatle owned 5% of, while the remaining 80% was owned by a new partnership, which was soon named Apple Corps. Hickey plays the first song published by Apple Publishing, Listen to the Sky, by a band named Sam. Oh, 
particulars about early Apple history and its strange link to ACDC. You've got to listen. He then goes into the Jackie Lomax story and its connection to Deep Purple. Again, you got to listen. Andrew outlines the planning for Magical Mystery Tour and the recording of the film music. Soundtrack starting on September the 5th with I Am the Walrus. And you haven't lived until you hear Andrew talking about some of John's lyrics. And so Lennon asked his old school friend Pete Shotton to remind him of a disgusting playground chant that kids used to sing in schools in the northwest of England, and which they still sang with very minor variations at my own school decades later. Childhood folklore has a remarkably long life. That rhyme went, Yellow matter custard, green snot pie, all mixed up with a dead dog's eye. Slap it on a butty, nice and thick, and drink it down with a cup of cold sick. The conception, execution, and casting of Magical Mystery Tour is reviewed. While Hickey talks about how bad the finished film was, he thinks that there are some interesting moments and wonders if there's a better film just an edit away. Paging, paging Peter, Peter Jackson, Jackson paging, paging Mr. Peter, Peter Jackson. Jackson. Eric mentions that that December, Derek Taylor gave each of the Beatles a copy of Nielsen's Pandemonium Shadow Show, which had been released earlier that month. Andrew says they all love the album, which is very true, but added that it would have a huge impact on their songwriting for the next couple of years. Really? I'd love to hear it if he explained how, as it's very hard to see a huge effect. It's been so hear a bit about the Ringo film Candy and George's soundtrack for Wonderwall. This leads to a brief history of the Remo 4 and the awesome lost track from Wonderwall in the first place. It was later recorded by the Remo 3. No, not really. Actually, the Remo 4 disbanded, then reformed without Colin Manley as Ashton, Gardner, and Dyke and recorded a truly horrible version of the retitled As It Was in the First Place.
Andrew also mentions that while the bulk of Wonderwall was Harrison's Indian music, several of the tracks featured Western musicians, including George Ringo, Eric Clapton, Peter Tork, and Big Jim Sullivan. George also recorded the backing for the track, The Inner Light. While he notes that the Beatles were so impressed with the track that it made it to the B-side of the Lady Madonna single, even though only two Beatles, Harrison and McCartney, appear on it. That seems to contradict Lewison, who notes that both Lennon and McCartney added limited backing vocals on Thursday, February the 8th, 1968. Paul has spoken highly about The Inner Light, and John apparently was fond of it also. Because the Beatles wanted to release a single prior to their trip to India, they completed background vocals on The Inner Light and worked on Across the Universe, Lady Madonna, and Hey Bullfrog, later changed to Hey Bulldog, the week before they left. The song that would be the A-side of the pre-India single was Paul's Lady Madonna. Andrew points out the influence of Bad Penny Blues by Humphrey Littleton and Everything by The Fat Man. Andrew talks about Hey Bulldog, which leads to a discussion of the Yellow, Yellow Submarine movie and Paul's appearance as a drummer on Paul Jones' song The Dark Presides, as Peter Asher was the producer. This led to Peter Asher's involvement with Apple. The trip to Rishikesh is reviewed in detail, with an interesting twist to Donovan's Travis-picking story, although I would say it's more clawhammer. But Andrew relates that when Donovan says... That John Lennon learned the picking style very fast while Paul took longer and had a difficult time with it. Andrew says that doesn't ring true. But that's not exactly what Donovan says. Donovan says that while he took three days to learn, John learned the picking style in only two days. Donovan says that Paul preferred to play while he walked around, and he actually didn't learn to play traditionally, but came up with his own picking style a style that resulted in Blackbird, Mother Nature's Son, amongst so many other masterpieces. And speaking of masterpieces, Donovan says that John wanted to learn the style to write a song about his mother. Donovan quotes John as saying, I want to write a song about me mother. I, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Donovan quotes John as saying, I want to write a song about my mother. I want a song about she and me walking along the beach. I think I have a memory of it, and her name is Julia. I find this very interesting, because I've always found the Ocean Child story in Lennon Remembers not only questionable, but in a way rather insulting to the spirit, beauty, and sentiment of the song Julia. If Donovan is to be believed, the story in Lennon Remembers is apocryphal, and yes, the Ocean Child is, and always was, Julia. 
Andrew mentions that one of the tapes John brought with him to India was the Incredible String Band, probably the 500 Spirits or the Layers of the Onion, which had come out in July of 1967. Andrew says their music would be a big influence on John and Paul for the next year. Now, while Paul names the 500 Spirits as one of his favorite albums of 1967, a big influence? I don't hear it, but perhaps that's just me. Andrew then introduces us to the unfortunate appearance of Yoko Ono into the Beatles story, and here he makes some very interesting observations that may explain some of John's frankly bizarre behavior. Although his heroin use, courtesy of Yoko, might also explain a fair amount of that behavior as well. Andrew notes with great perception that the return from Rishikesh and the introduction of Yoko is where the Beatles and the Beatles story fragment. Andrew does a good job of pointing out the panoply of inaccuracies in the John-Cynthia-Yoko situation that led to two sad events, John and Sin's divorce and the Two Virgins album. We also hear about John and Paul's trip to the U.S. to announce Apple and Paul's reconnection with Linda Eastman. We then get to the White Album, and Andrew does a good job of discussing John's dominance on that album, including the first track worked on, Revolution. A general discussion of the various political upheavals in 1968 follows. The importance of Revolution 9 is discussed, and Andrew's opinion is spot on. We get a quick snippet of the first Apple record, Apple One. Though we've not met, I'm convinced she's a gem. I'm just SS, but to me, she's Big M. Mainly because she prefers me to them. That's why the lady is a champ. As well as the other early Apple releases. He talks about the recording of the single Revolution and then the writing and recording of Hey Jude. He quotes George Martin as saying the song was too long, but of course it reached number one in 17 countries and was the biggest selling single of 1968. We even get the story of the expletive that snuck in. While I think it's John, Andrew isn't sure. The Trident studio engineer, Malcolm Toft, unequivocally says, it's Lennon. Remember to let her under your skin Then you begin to make it now we hear about Ringo quitting the Beatles on August 22nd, and Andrew feels that this date, also the date when Cynthia filed for divorce, is the beginning of the end of the band. I would probably say it was November 7th, 1966, although to make it seem like a magical destiny thing, John and Yoko have revised the date to November 9th, lucky number 9. Nothing is real. Andrew talks about the drumming duties on Back in the USSR and Dear Prudence, and he says that Ringo had no input at all. But most people seem to think that Ringo may have done some overdubs on Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence 
the While My Guitar Gently Weeps session is reviewed, Clapton in, Martin out, and Chris Thomas being thrown into the fire and completing six tracks with the fabs. A brief mention of the album sleeve and package is made, but I've always thought there was more to this story. The idea of Sgt. Pepper was that the Beatles could do an album that was a surrogate band. You may have heard that term before. But the stark white cover emphasizes that this is the Beatles. No distractions, nothing else, no one else on the cover. On Pepper, they said... On the White Album, they prove it. The amazing range of music, and this is why it's a 30-song double album, say to me, here we are. We can do Beach Boys. We can do Psychedelia. We can do Hard Rock. We can do Lullabies. We can do Folk. We can do Country. We can do English Music Hall. We can do Americana. We can even do Musique Concrete. And we can do it better than anyone. We are the act you've known for all these years. We are the Beatles. And yes, thank you for letting me indulge my completely circumstantial theory. But back to Andrew's 500 Songs podcast. We hear the messy story of George's electronic sound, and Bernie Krause sounds like a right twat. My opinion, not Andrew's, but let's face it. We've all heard No Time or Space on electronic sound. Would you really want to take credit for that? Sergeant Simonola Pilchard makes an appearance meriting out the twisted concept of justice, or perhaps the twisted concept of fraud. Andrew thankfully refrains from playing the track Baby's Heartbeat from Life with the Lions number two, and ends with this. By the time the White Album came out on November the 25th, 1968, the Beatles had been pushed to their limits. Since the start of the year, they'd had a member quit and come back, a divorce, a broken engagement, a partner having a miscarriage, a drug arrest, two new relationships, had several house moves, found and in some cases lost a new religion, started a new business, one member developing a heroin habit, and between them made two and a half solo albums, two non-album singles with B-sides, a handful of songs for other projects, and produced a couple of albums for other people, as well as their own double album. What they needed more than anything, if the Beatles were to continue, was a break. And they got one. For just over a month. On the 2nd of January 1969, they were to start work on their next album. But that's a story for another time. This podcast was over three and a half hours long. Now, did I find and mentioned a few things that I don't agree with? But again, three and a half hours, and most of my disagreements are over minutia. The History of Rock in 500 Songs, and I know you've heard it before, but Andrew's podcast is a giant among dwarves, myself included. This isn't just an entertaining podcast. It's an important podcast, important for so many reasons. As Beatle fans, should you listen to your podcast? I don't see how any serious fan cannot listen. It's that monumental. I should also mention that Andrew has books, covering episodes 1 through 50, and another volume covering episodes 51 through 100, and and hopefully a book covering 101 through 150 will be out soon. While I strive to provide at least a veneer of impartiality, I want to take the opportunity to personally thank Andrew Hickey 
for his exceptional research, his exceptional presentation, his wonderfully dry sense of humor, and his humanity in presenting this gift to music fans everywhere. Perhaps I really will be able to review episode 500. But that's a story for another time. Rock and roll, yeah. Rock and roll and rock away. Up and down, round and round this way. We'll eat well in the spell of the rolling rock and rhythm of the sea. Rock and roll and rock along. Life is sweet. She thinks my tractor's sexy. Well, she ain't in the cars or pickup trucks, but if it runs like a deer, man, her eyes light up. She thinks my tractor, she thinks my tractor's sexy. It really turns her on. She's always staring at me. Here's a little section I like to call Media City. No, no, John, it's Media City, not Meat City. So, uh, sorry, Mr. Podman, I completely misunderstood. I hope you can forgive me. Not to worry, Johnny, you are forgiven. Thank you kindly. Anyway, on Media City, I'll be talking about various media concerning the Beatles. They may be TV shows, books, or really any media involving the Fab Four. Time on, Podman. Well, today on Meat City, we are going to look at another live event, the 2024 NAM Convention. The NAM Show is an annual event organized by the National Association of Music Merchants and is the industry's largest stage, uniting global music, sound, and entertainment technology. NAM attendance is restricted to owners, suppliers, journalists, endorsed artists, and guests of NAM member companies. The Podman was fortunate to attend the event again this year. The size of this event can't be overstated. Back in 2022, the show featured 1,200 exhibitors and was attended by almost 50,000 attendees. On Thursday, January 25th, I had the pleasure of meeting Lawrence Juber at the NAMM convention, the amazing guitarist who says he took up guitar the first time he heard, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Juber joined Wings in 1978 and played on the Back to the Egg album. He was also a member of Wings until they disbanded in 1981. He also played on Ringo's Stop and Smell the Roses album, but was erroneously credited as Lawrence Tuber on the sleeve. Apparently, Ringo chose not to use any editors when putting the sleeve together. Juber produced, arranged, and performed on the last four Al Stewart albums, He's also released four albums of Beatles guitar covers that are all fantastic, and he's also featured a number of Beatle tunes and post-Beatle tunes on his other guitar albums. At the NAMM convention, we were treated to a 30-minute performance by Juber that included his performance of Won't Get Fooled Again on acoustic guitar. (laughs) 
treated to a performance by drummer Greg Bissonette. Now, before I give you some of Greg's credentials, I want to go out of my way to say that Mr. Bissonette is one of the friendliest people I've ever had the pleasure to meet. The fact that Greg names Ringo as his favorite drummer is also endearing. Check out Greg's YouTube video, Why Ringo Starr is My Favorite Drummer. It's great. Greg gave us a fantastic performance on the drums and featured a bit of this. Unfortunately, I didn't have any tea towels handy, otherwise I would have gladly lent them to him. On Friday, I got my 20,000 steps in, which is almost an automatic at this show. But for me, the highlight was on Saturday. A discussion entitled Keltner and Cooch, The Session Masters, with Mr. Bonsai. So let's start with Mr. Bonsai, a.k.a. David Goggin. You may never have heard of Mr. Bonsai, but he's written four books with another, The Story of Record Plant West, coming later in 2024. But for Mr. Bonsai's most amazing story, we have to jump into the time machine with Rod Taylor and Yvette Mimio. And journey back to September 1967, when Mr. Bonsai, although then I assume he was called Kid Bonsai, walked up to John Lennon's front door in Kenwood and asked John's housekeeper Dorothy, Dot to her friends, if he could speak with John. Dot advised him that John was still asleep, but invited him to wait in the garage. When John awoke, he went out to the garage and invited Mr. Bonsai in. This echoes what Jim Keltner and Danny Korchmar had to say about John, but more on that later. According to Mr. Bonsai, he and John spoke about meditation, movies, and music. John then invited Mr. Bonsai to take a ride in his Rolls Royce to Abbey Road Studios in London to witness a Beatles session. That must have sounded something like this. The very first recording session Mr. Bonsai ever attended was at Abbey Road, the Beatles working on I Am the Walrus. Jim Keltner really needs no introduction, but since I love the sound of my own voice, I, I don't really. I'll do one anyway. James Lee Keltner was born in 1942 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
In the late 60s, he became one of the busiest session drummers in Los Angeles. His work with Delaney and Bonnie led to work on John's Imagine and playing Double Drums with Ringo at George's Concert for Bangladesh. He played on Harrison's Living in the Material World, Dark Horse, Extra Texture, Somewhere in England, Gone Tropo, Cloud Nine, and even Brainwashed. He played on John's Imagine album, Mind Games, Walls and Bridges, and Rock and Roll, as well as Pussycats by Harry Nielsen. Keltner also played on Ringo's Ringo album, Goodnight Vienna, Ringo's Rotogravier, and Stop and Smell the Roses. Jim Keltner has pretty much played with everyone. The youngster on the stage was Danny Kooch Korchmer, born in 1946. Kooch started playing with local New York bands, including the King Bees, and later formed a band, The Flying Machine, with his childhood friend, James Taylor. He later recommended Taylor to Apple's A&R man, Peter Asher. In 1967, Cooch joined the Fugs for about a year playing on the Tenderness Junction album. Cooch then moved to L.A. and joined a trio with Charles Larkey and Carol King named The City. After The City broke up, Cooch continued working with Carol King and played on her monumental album, Tapestry. Cooch also reunited with James Taylor and played on his Sweet Baby James album. The 1970s saw Cooch as one of L.A.'s top session men playing on albums by Linda Ronstadt, Warren Zevon, Jackson Brown, and many others. He played on the album Strange Pussies by Harry Nielsen, which was produced by John Lennon. Once everyone from the session sobered up, the name of the album was changed. While working with George on his Extra Texture album, Paul Stallworth, David Foster, and Jim Keltner formed the band Attitudes. Cooch was also in the band, although he didn't play on Extra Texture, as George notes on the back cover. Danny Cooch Kuchma does not play on this album. Like Keltner, Cooch has played with almost everyone. So what did these two music legends spend an hour talking about? Well, mostly the Beatles. But the talk started with Mr. Bonsai talking about the Mick Jagger tune, Too Many Cooks, that grew out of the, named by George Harrison, Sunday Night Jim Keltner Fan Club at the Record Plant Studio in Hollywood. That night, John Lennon and May Peng were out at dinner with Richard Perry, and they went to the Record Plant to see Jim Keltner, Stephen Stills, Mick Jagger, Al Cooper, Cooch, Bobby Keys, Jack Bruce, and Harry Neal. Oh yeah, Too Many Cooks. It was so... Ostensibly, it was produced by, uh, by John Lennon, uh, but well, actually, actually, what happened was um, John and May 
and you all may know who, remember who May was, uh, the other woman, terrible way to put it, she's a lovely lady, <laughs> wonderful person actually too. But um, she and John were at dinner with our mutual friend Richard Perry, the great producer. And uh, Richard told John after dinner when they were, uh, am I talking too loud? So, uh, so Richard told John, said, uh, uh, Jim is with his buddies at the record plant doing a jam session. And uh, so John said, well, let's go. So John came down and, uh, and was just coming down and shaking everybody's hands, having a good time, you know, and, uh, and as history has made it turn out, he has, you know, produced uh, this track that we did. And in actual fact, it was because he said, uh, I think, didn't somebody say, come on out and play, John, or, or something? John said, no, I'll stay in the booth and, pr and produce. So that's how he became producer. The, uh, the actual production was really more Danny Korchma. Uh, he he found the song, the yeah. brought the song, the Jagger and played it for him, and Mick flipped out because it's a great song, and uh, and so when we recorded that night, I mean the the main riff is is Cooch's and everybody just fell in behind him, and you got Mick Jagger singing, you can't do anything wrong. That's basically what that is. Nelson. After a bit of haggling about what song they should play, Cooch brought out a single he had with him of the song "Too Many Cooks Spoil the Soup." by 100 Proof, Aged in Soul. Keltner says that the song wasn't actually produced by John at all, but when the musicians asked John to come out onto the floor and play, he said, no, I'll stay in the booth and produce. But according to Jim Keltner, Cooch was the actual producer. Cooch remembers that almost as an afterthought, as he was heading to the studio, he grabbed the single Too Many Cooks Spoil the Soup and tossed it into the back of his amp. At the session, Cooch played the single for everyone, and everyone agreed that would be the song they would do. Yeah, the way I remember it happening to me, uh, was that everyone was having dinner up there at uh, Kellegren's, I've been told. And uh, as I was leaving the house, I had my amp and a guitar, and I was going down there to hang out with the fellows and play with Jim. And on the way out, I said, you know what, let me just throw this in here. I grabbed a 45 that I have one of my favorite rhythm and blues 45s called Too Many Cooks Spoil the Soup. That's why a group called uh, Hunter Proof Aged in Soul. That was the name of the band. 
so I'll just be in the back. Right down there. Now everybody's sitting around. I mean, everybody, you know, John and, and uh, everyone is in, well, very good mood. Let's put it like that. Um, and, uh, but nobody knew what, to, what tune to play. And still suggested, Stephen Stills was there. He said, well, I got a tune. But nobody wanted to do that. The idea was nothing would have happened if we'd had to do a partisan tune. That is a tune that one of the people there had written. It wasn't going to happen. But so I pulled this, <laughs> I pulled the single out of my uh, amplifier. So well, check this out. We played it. Everyone loved it. You couldn't, you couldn't not love this tune or this record. And everyone immediately said, yep, let's do that. Jagger wrote out the words, and uh, we all piled into the studio and started banging away. I mean, that was, it, it happened quickly, as I recall. As, as for producer, that's hard to say because uh, uh, Harry and John were wandering around back there. Kellergren was wandering around back there. You know, just, you'd see them milling around. So it was an interesting production style. Uh, uh, but uh, it sure did work. The musicians, we all just came together. And we loved playing together. And the tune was right. The tune was fun to play. So everyone just got into it. And away we went. When talking about who produced the song, Cooch says that John, Harry Nielsen, and Gary Kellegren from the record plant were all wandering around in the booth. But he really can't say who did what. The co-owner of the record plant, Chris Stone, says John produced the song because he paid for the studio time. Mr. Bonsai asked Keltner and Cooch when they met, and while they don't remember exactly, Cooch remembers that he was amazed by how little Keltner moves his hands when he's playing drums. Cooch says that Keltner looked like he was dealing cards when he played drums. Keltner talks about how idiotic the pounders on drums look. He says... Like the Beatles. You remember the Beatles? You remember the Beatles live, uh, the first time you saw them uh, on a clip? Uh, you know, it's incredible. The, the singing, the playing, everything was beautiful. They were playing to the level of the drums. They did not have 10 on the amp up. Um, you know, so their singing came through real good. Everything was beautiful because of the way they played. Um, and I'm probably going to... Can I jump in? Can I jump in one second and say yeah. something? All right, volume is not power. Power is power, not volume. You see these guys slamming away like they're chopping wood, like they're chopping down a tree. That ain't how you play the goddamn drums. Sorry, I should have said. That's not how you play the drums. That's not how real drummers play the drums. That's how you get a heart attack at age 50, is what that is. See, we're going to insult. with finesse, stunning finesse. And uh, to me, that makes him one of the best in the world. He doesn't have to slash away and raise his arms and throw his head around to that stupid... Stuff that uh, I, I keep seeing on TV and on, 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 on clips. It's all nonsense, you know? Being able to play 30-second notes with your, with your bass drums, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Bass drum should be working on the song. It should be the, the drum should work on the song. There's no such point in just getting chops for no reason. Now, I think that's my point. Can we continue? Yeah, well, look, you know, the last thing that uh, we want to do is insult any of y'all out there. I don't know. That's, some, that's you. I don't want to insult Some of you know. out there are. I mean, I'm so true. Myself. Um, watch, you know, Ringo back in the day, in those early days of Beatles stuff, it was incredible. They, they sounded beautiful. And Ringo, everything he played was so perfect. It just matched the song just right. And he was playing like this. And, and, uh, and for any drummers, and then I won't, and then I'll get off of this, and we'll go back to David uh, thing here. I'm enjoying this. I hope you are. But but but, I, but let me just say, uh, 
Ringo's drum, for all you drummers, Ringo's drum head that he played on with that black uh, oyster Ludwig kit, that was a calf skin on that snare drum. All those years, that was a calf skin, and it was the same head from the very, very early beginning, TV shows, records, everything, that same snare drum head, and it had a little tiny slit, and it had a little piece of tape over it that Mal Evans put on. And that drum head lasted until record plant, jam session night one night, Paul McCartney is down there. Paul is playing on Ringo's drums next to my drums. We're jamming and thinking we're doing something good. And I look over at Paul, and he goes right through the head. And, and I went, oh, my jeez. So we get up off the drums later. And the first thing I said to him was, Paul, you just broke the Ed Sullivan head, man. <laughs> and he, he said, I'll buy him a new one. Uh, and that was it. But, I mean, that's how, that's the volume that Ringo Starr played the drums on. He was able to use a calf head on his snare drum for their entire Beatle career. That amazes me. I don't need to say anything more about that. Then they get into the story of the Jim Keltner fan club. Uh, it was, had to do with George Harrison. No. Well, the, the Wings album came out in 72, and on the album, on the back, it said, if you'd like to join the Wings fan club, uh, please send a self-addressed stamped envelope with an address. Well, no, no, that came, that's, the joke came from George and Ringo, who thought this was really funny. So they said, let's call it the Jim Keltner Fan Club. And on their albums, it said, send a stamped, self-undressed elephant. So that's the Jim Keltner Fan Club. You can imagine what I, you know, when I, when I saw it, I, uh, first of all, it, it started um, the uh, trend of uh, fan letters coming to me, but not for me. <laughs> they were coming to my address from Capitol Records. And uh, they all these, and I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. Uh, I kind of wish I was, but uh, uh, where we lived at the time was on the street six doors up and three doors down from the LaBiancas, the uh, people who were murdered in their homes by Manson followers. And we had just moved in. And so I went on the road, I think, I don't know, uh, Mad Dogs, I think, or something. And Cynthia, when I, when I called her later, uh, she said, uh, we got a, a visit from the, uh, from the neighbors, uh, or we got a visit, a nice uh, welcome visit, you know. And I said, oh, good, what was it? who was it? She said, it was a detective so-and-so. And he left his card and said, if you find any bloody clothing or weapons in the ivy, uh, call this number. And so that was the atmosphere I'm in at the time. And then suddenly, uh, I mean, shortly thereafter, I'm getting letters from Capitol Records, and I'm opening them up, and they're saying, 
if you don't get me a hold of John Lennon, some of them were Bob. There was a lot of them for Bob Dylan. Um, we are going to, and then it was awful, so I can't repeat what the, the, the letters were terrible. And um, so I asked George, I said, George, why did you do that, man? Uh, and he, he said, you know, he was just trying to be funny. Uh, and and I, I really hate the, telling the rest of that story, so I won't say that story, but, but it, yeah. But anyway, the, the point is that that's what happened. And um, uh, then Gary Kelgren at uh, one night at dinner, you know, he's saying, let's do the jam session. We'll call it the Jim Keltner fan club uh, hour. And I said, oh, that's fantastic, hour. but let's don't call it the Jim Keltner fan club, okay? Can we, let's just call it jam session. I'm sorry I brought it up, Jim. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, that's the way that started, and, and I... Uh, I had nothing to do with it. I tried to, I tried to, to abort it. it. Right, you tried to, to uh, chill. But it was a great, it turned out to be a great thing. I mean, we... They both talk about how much they miss playing on the floor with no baffles and just letting the sound bleed. Keltner says... Those days, for me, what I loved about those days a lot that I kind of miss now is that we would play live on the floor in the studio and um, very few baffles... Uh, like because, in other words, part of the music, part of the magic is the bleed, you know, between the, the sound of everybody. And, uh, but you had to know how to control that as an engineer. You had to know how, what to do with that. Yeah, and that's, you know, Jimmy, you point out a, a really important thing is that obviously this is to a large degree entirely gone from popular and rock and roll music now. Everything is overdubbed one at a time. People send tracks to uh, to you, for instance. You play on them and send them back. But that is nowhere near the same. It's not the same thing as getting in a studio with a bunch of cats. Jimmy said is, there's, there's another thing that happens. There's the leakage and uh, is another musician almost, you know. And yeah, that's, and that's what creates the sound. Without that, you don't have that sound. You can't do it at home on your little computer. You can't. I don't care what the plugin you use. You gotta have guys in a room. Well, but that is true. But having said that, um, I'm a big believer in uh, doing things at your home all alone. <laughs> I mean, Me that's too. What I, because that's what I have to do. You know, uh, I, I I've been writing crazy little pieces of music, and uh, Danny has been a part of it. Uh, a lot of great friends of mine. Uh, but what I will do is I'll bring the stuff uh, to somebody. They'll they'll uh, listen and add something or whatever, and then I'll end up playing at home. So anyway, I have I have Pro Tools set up, and and I have uh, really great mics and uh, and some good speakers. And so I do that all the time. I play the drums at home for my own stuff. The one thing that I haven't been wanting to do is to have people send me files so that I can play on their records like that. Uh, I want to go to the studio when I'm playing for somebody else, and I want to be able to have that vibe and everything. And preferably, we would be doing it like Danny says, where we all be playing live. Uh, but uh, but anyway, so I just I like to make that clear. I I love the modern technology that we have available. I use it, and I and I love it. I believe in it, but. There is no way to make those great Steely Dan records and all the other records that, 
that people like. I don't care if it's a punk record that you love more than anything. That stuff, those early days when everybody's playing on the floor together, that's that's something you can't do alone at, at your house. You 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 know, it's just I'm the same way. I have I have a gear at home too, and you know, I do a lot of stuff at home by myself. It's mainly songwriting though. Because uh, once I've written the song, I prefer to uh, have guys play on it. You know, I know all these wonderful musicians. I'm in a band with, you know, extraordinary musicians. And uh, so at that point, yeah, I want to uh, get with the cats. Cooch talks about writing songs with Don Henley and how Henley was tech crazy. He always wanted any new tech. Cooch said they had the first DX7 in L.A. and he used it on All She Wants to Do Is Dance. Cooch also talks about his friendship with James Taylor. Um, Cooch, you were a, a teenager and when you met uh, James Taylor, right? That's an interesting period because you guys were so young. How did it develop from there? Well, how did it develop? Let me see. Uh, when I met James, we were both teenagers. I, was, I think I was 14 and he was 13, something like that. And we were just hanging out like kids do, uh, lollygagging around. Uh, hitchhiking everywhere and doing whatever. Uh, him and me and some other cats, some some of our other friends. And um, one time we were um, hitchhiking somewhere, and he started to sing. He started to sing a Ray Charles tune. I went, "What? <laughs> I didn't know anyone that could sing. I, I, you know, I knew what good singing was, but I didn't know anyone that could sing." I looked at him like he had just, you know, dropped out of the sky. I said, "You can sing, man." <laughs> Being James is typical, you know, reticent cell. So we started playing music together. He had a little guitar at that point. In other words, he could play a little bit. But the next summer, when we came back to uh, uh, where we were for summer vacation, he had his, basically his whole style that you hear now. He had, he had refined it and uh, made it into what you hear when you hear James now. So uh, he had it, for sure. Um, I can't tell you that uh, I thought, this guy's going to be a star. I knew he had it to be a star. I knew he was good enough to be a star. I knew he was, you know, I knew he had the charisma and this voice and the songwriting, but I also knew the realities of the music business, where, uh, you know, don't get your hopes up, babe. <laughs> you know, so, but, of course, we know what happened. He did become a star. Well, that, he was the, the first, uh, well, Apple Records. How did that happen? You were involved in, in that, weren't you? Well, peripherally, I was involved uh, in that. I was friends with Peter Asher. One of my bands, the King Bees, went out to back up Peter and Gordon on a short tour they were doing in New England. So, uh, I, and Peter and I became buddies. Um, so after the Flying Machine, the band James and I had Flying Machine, after we broke up, he uh, said, well, I'm gonna go try my luck in England. There's a big folk scene going on there. I'm gonna go over there and see what's going on. So I said, well, if you're gonna go over there, here, here's Peter, you should call this guy, Peter Asher. And uh, I think he's with Apple Records now, and you should call him and play him your songs. So, and I gave him uh, Peter's address and phone number. One day he just shows up at Peter's place with his guitar. 
who are you? I'm friends with Cooch. He goes, oh, come on. Let me, can I play you my songs? He does. Peter flips. He immediately takes James to the Apple offices. And he yells down the hall, any Beatles here? And uh, so I think George walks out. And uh, James plays his songs for, for George. Immediate record deal. Off we go. Jim Keltner tells the story of how he became the drummer on Imagine. Uh, I was uh, staying with uh, Clapton at his home in uh, Surrey. Uh, and we were uh, recording every night at, uh, we'd drive into Barnes uh, Olympic Studios. And uh, so we'd get back real late and uh, not be in, a, in the greatest shape in the morning, usually. Uh, but so Eric was sleeping real late, you know, and I slept late, but he slept later than me. So uh, I would be up, and uh, so the phone rang one morning, and I'm in the kitchen. And it kept ringing, wouldn't stop, so I just picked it up. And uh, and the uh, guy said, uh, is Eric there? And I said, uh, yeah, but he's asleep. I can't wake him up. And he said, this is Spill Spectre. And uh, and I said, well, I, you know, I, I can't wake him up. I, uh, if you want to call back later, he said, well, look, you want to come and play on a session with, with John? Uh, and I said, John? And he goes, John Lennon? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, said, I, I, I really would like that. And uh, so I got a friend of mine, uh, Colin Allen, drummer with Stone the Crows band. He had a little tiny, one of those little, what do they call them in uh, England? Uh, huh? Pubs. No, a little, little car, a little, uh, yeah, minor. right, right. Minor. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, the smallest car in the world. And he had his little yellow Gretsch drums in the back and uh, took me to uh, John's, uh, Tittenhurst, they call it. And that's when, we, that's when I met John. But that's how I met John, was, was uh, Spectre looking for Clapton. So that's, that's what, they always get that wrong. Like it's a big deal, right? We got it right today with these guys. Um, you should, uh, Jimmy, you should also tell them, since we mentioned the Beatles, that uh, uh, Jimmy and I played on um, Pussycats, which is a record that John produced oh, with, yeah. uh, with Harry. Harry Nilsson. Everyone in the world was there. I mean, at one point I looked up on the drum riser, and it's Jimmy, Ringo, and Keith Moon, all feet, pounding away. And um, I'd have to say there was probably some um, sleep repellent going around that evening. Uh, in any case, um, what the point I wanted to make was that uh, John Lennon was very approachable. He was just another guy. He, he did, never pulled rank. He never acted like a star. He talked, he, he talked to everybody with, with uh, confidence, and, and he knew what he wanted, but never pulling rank, never with an attitude, never, hey, I, don't you know who I am? Nothing like that. And in fact, none of the guys, none of those guys in the Beatles were like that. They all were really, really straight-ahead people. Yeah, and I'm sure that's that's not unusual. You know, everybody here knows somebody famous, and you'd probably say the same thing about them, the regular people. But uh, that's what was so heartbreaking to me about John, knowing John's uh, accessibility. He loved people, and um, he loved, you know, the fact that people loved him. And uh, that night that that guy took him out, uh, he was... Happy to be there amongst all those people. Shaking hands, saying, hi, y'all. You know, so his vulnerability was 
what got him in the end, but he was a tremendous uh, regular kind of guy, John. He really, really was. They talk a bit about Neil Young, and Keltner talks about the Neil Young song Peace Trail and why there aren't any snares on the snare drums on that track because Neil Young was so inspired to roll tape and Keltner didn't have time to set up his snares. notice I stopped that before Neil Young started singing. You can thank me later. I get the impression that the guys could fill a fortnight with amazing stories about their amazing careers. I was honored to attend. In the words of Dr. Winston O'Boogie, you should have been there. Here's a little something extra from from your friend, the Podman. Um, I've been hearing and reading on various Beatle sites that a digital version of the single mix of Meat City is impossible to find. Now, the single mix of Meat City features Rick Murata on drums. And of course, the second drummer is our very own Jim Keltner. So here it is, the single mix of Meat City. If you're listening on YouTube, you're not going to hear anything here. Feel free to check it out on my website, IamThePodMan.com. Thank <laughs> you. 
That is rock and roll. Check the album, baby. Well, I've been sent inside forever, so what better time to listen to Ethan Alexanian's Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatle fans. Hey, that's me! Fans on the Run started in 2020. As of today, Ethan has released 83 episodes. Some of the many notable guests Ethan has welcomed to the cast are Ken Womack, David Bedford, Liddy Poole, not Tubular Bells, Walter J. Podrazic, Mitch Weissman, Bruce Spicer, Robert Rodriguez, and Richard Buskin, not together, Lawrence Juber, Lizzie Bravo, Jason Krupa, Hunter Davies, and Mark Lewison. Today I'm reviewing episode 82 with guest Jonathan Pretis. This is Fans of the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. All right, welcome, welcome, welcome back to Fans on the Run. I, 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 I've been playing with how I, how I enunciate that, and you know the intonation and how I say it for God knows how long, and I, I. I've settled into a pattern, but I don't like the pattern, so it's it. It's just a. It's just not a good situation all around. <laughs> we we, I I need to I need to change. I need. You can Christopher Walken it. Yeah. Well, welcome back to fans. On the run. Jonathan, along with his wife Julia, hosts the Ranking the Beatles podcast which is now in its fourth year. Jonathan also plays guitar in a New Orleans-based Beatles band, The Walrus, who seem to play quite often at one of the Podman's favorite NOLA hangouts, Tipitina's, on Napoleon Avenue. So a brief word about this fine establishment. The name was inspired by the song Tipitina by Henry Roland Bird, also known as Professor Longhair. Here's a bit of the original 1954 recording on Atlantic by Professor Longhair and his Blues Scholars. And while I'm talking about the professor, and since Mardi Gras was earlier this week, 
Let's hear a bit of Meet Me at the Mardi Gras from 1959 on Ron Records, although this was actually a re-recording of the 1949 song Mardi Gras in New Orleans by Professor Longhair and his shuffling Hungarians. Tell you what's carnival for. So, Tipitina's is a club dedicated to Professor Longhair. Great place, great music, and two words Bloody Marys. If ever a cocktail could be considered to be a full meal, it's Tipitina's Bloody Mary. So, let's hear a bit of Jonathan Priedis' band Live at Tipitina's. Before I leave the topic of New Orleans, and yes, there will be a very New Orleans-flavored podcast, probably Slap Your Mama-flavored, coming your way on I Am The Podman very soon, probably episode 7. But it should be noted that a certain Mr. McCartney personally invited Professor Longhair to play at the launch party for Venus and Mars at the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California, on March 24, 1975. Present at this launch party were George Harrison, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Carol King, Marvin Gaye, Phil Everly, The Jackson Five, Dean Martin, Tony Curtis, Mickey Dolenz, and Davy Jones. Professor Longhair's performance, backed by the meters, was released on MPL as Live at the Queen Mary in 1978. Le Zé le bon temps So where were we? Ah, yes. 
Fans on the Run, and guest Jonathan Pretis. So in addition to the Ranking the Beatles podcast and the Beatles tribute band The Walrus, Jonathan has a band that plays 90s music big in the 90s and a band called The Breton Sound. Dancing in the hallway Dancing in the hallway There's a house Ethan and Jonathan do their introductions and talk a bit about AI, which naturally leads to now and then. Jonathan says he likes restorative AI, but isn't fond of generative AI. But he is curious where the technology will lead, but wonders where it will end. Ethan is interested in generative AI, at least more than Jonathan. They talk a bit about the commercial failure of Beatles rock band. Sorry, Harmonix, but as fans, we loved it. In discussing Now and Then, Jonathan says he's a fan. It made him very happy to hear, but he didn't care for the video. Ethan was disappointed, as he was hoping to be blown away. He really loves real love. It's one of his top ten Beatles songs. They have some laughs at Mike Love's speech at the 1988 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And if my podcast has proved little, it has proved this. Never give a minor talent with a bone to pick a microphone. Jonathan talks about his discovery of the Beatles from hearing them playing in the waiting room of his sister's orthodontist. I should have known better, is what got him. After stealing Beatles 6 or Beatles VI from his aunt, he started buying cassettes, a bold step over the 8-track listening experience, and was fascinated by the different configurations of the cassettes. But as with the second waivers, it was the red and the blue that got him. Both talk about the Malcolm McDowell-narrated Complete Beatles, and how great it was, and why no digital release. And they played like no other music group in history. Now the Complete Beatles, a feature-length, never-before-released Delilah Films documentary of their backstage and public antics. The people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands. And the rest of you, you just rattle your jewelry. Their concert triumphs, and above all, their incredible music. From poor Liverpool days to musical immortality. Let there be Beatles, the Complete Beatles. Now in your own home on MGM UA video cassettes or video discs. Plus, three other new MGM UA home video releases, Elvis on tour, the Emmy award-winning first Barry Manilow special, and the secret policeman's other ball with members of the Monty Python crew, all in stereo on video cassettes and video discs from MGM UA home video. The greatest film studio on earth brings it home to you. Liverpool, 200 miles to the northwest of London. Nothing much ever came from Liverpool, but soccer teams and British comedians. The city droned on wearily in post-war Britain, a nation nostalgic for its triumphant past, threadbare and tired in its present. For a boy growing up in Liverpool, the future was no brighter than that which his father had faced, 
or his father's father. In 1956, in fact, there was little to suggest that out of this provincial seaport would come four young men and a musical revolution that would captivate and change the world. Pretty well, little brother. Pretty well. Ethan asks how ranking the Beatles started. Jonathan says it was a combination of boredom, alcohol, and the pandemic. The main topic they discuss is Jonathan's color coding of the Beatles albums, which makes sense to Jonathan in his head movie. I always thought that was a monkey's movie. Jonathan talks about his least favorite Beatles song, and no surprise here, the winner slash loser is Mr. Moonlight. Come on, that Lennon vocal intro. Mr. Moonlight. Ethan nominates The Long and Winding Road, but thinks the best version is from Get Back. Everyone seems to forget Wings Over America. They discuss, with appropriate derision, the multivariant re-releases on vinyl and how it inhibits vinyl issues by lesser-known artists. They also despair the reissues and how they decide what to include and what not to include. And let me just jump in here. I'm a first-generation fan, and I can safely say that after, oh, let's use the 2018 White Album Deluxe box set as an example, but this goes for any of them. I can't imagine no possessions. No, I can't imagine another re-re-re-re-release of the White Album in my lifetime. So why hold anything back? 
Isn't there a take of George trying out the lead on While My Guitar Gently Weeps? Or trying out the vocal line echoes on Hey Jude? As Peter Jackson said when talking about the additional get-back footage, if they don't put it out now, they probably never will. If the philosophy at Apple is that they want to curate the Beatles' legacy to such a degree, I would postulate that they don't even understand the Beatles. These are the freaking Beatles! At this point in history, the thought that anything could damage their legacy is pedestrian thinking, and not the mindset that should have anything to do with this treasure. And that's one reporter's opinion. But back to fans on the run. The lads talk a bit about podcasting and how most of us are very happy to see our competitors' success. Jonathan, in referring to podcasters and podcasts, says, We all hopefully say good things about each other. Well, except those of us who review other podcasts. (laughs) So then Ethan and Jonathan spend a couple minutes good-naturedly taking the piss out of Donovan. See, it's all related. Ethan asks the big question, What do the Beatles mean to you? Jonathan replies that the Beatles are like the Alpha and Omega. Hey, what a great name for an album that would be. He says his life is what it is because of the Beatles. So should you listen to Fans on the Run, a podcast made for and about and of interest to and featuring and so it goes and so it goes and so it goes. So I know that Jonathan is only a guest on this episode of Fans on the Run, but let me say that talking Beatles with Ethan and Jonathan over Tipitina's Bloody Marys would be an awesome way to spend a Sunday afternoon in NOLA. Come to think of it, any afternoon. I didn't agree with everything they said. Heck no. But children, there was a time in the distant past when people who didn't all goose-step to the same drum could have disagreements and talk about it. Hard to imagine, but true. But seriously, Ethan's Fans on the Run is a ton of fun, and just looking over his past guests, this is definitely a podcast that I will add to my regular listens. You should too. Let's play out with another bit of music by Brenton Sound. It's a bit of music called Ardent Time Lapse, and it seems to be just a bit of incidental music while Time Lapse video of the band setting up their gear at the world-famous Ardent Studios in Memphis. Bob Dylan, James Taylor, Leon Russell, Three Doors Down, Isaac Hayes, Joe Walsh, and now Brenton Sound. Enjoy!
thank you for listening to I Am The Podman, a Beatles podcast review. I hope you have enjoyed the show. Please remember to like and subscribe. If you have a Beatles-related podcast that you would like me to review, please feel free to email me at IamThePodman at gmail.com. That's IamThePodman at gmail.com. Now it's time to say goodnight. Peace and love. Imagine. take my purse. If ever thou wilt thrive, bury my body. And give the letters which thou find'st about me to Edmund Earl of Gloucester. Seek him out upon the British party. Oh, untimely death. death. I know thee well. A serviceable villain. As duteous to the vices of thy mistress as badness would desire. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rest you.